Well, good morning. Right, I know we're, um, we're not a Catholic church, but I, we don't do confession here normally, but I have to ask a, to confess, how many of you woke up this morning and uh, felt the cold, heard the wind, and said, second service? <laughs> a couple of hands went up. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, um, it's a cold one out there today, and it's, uh, it's a little bit snowy, but it's great to be here as we worship the Lord together. So would you join with me as we open up in a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you for the church family that we have, that we can gather together and come together like this and, and worship you. We can sing our praise, we can read your word, and Father, I pray that as we read your word this morning that you would open our hearts, uh, open our minds to what it is that you want to teach us today. Father, it's, um, it is an interesting passage that we're going to be approaching today, and Father, sometimes we can come to your word and not truly understand it, and I pray that, Lord, that you would give us just illuminate our minds. Help us to understand what it is that you want to teach us. We thank you for the consistency of your word that's, Lord, from the Old Testament to the New. You've one plan of redemption that's been just an amazing gift to us to come to Jesus Christ as Savior. And Father, we thank you how as today we'll be spending time in the Old Testament and we can see Christ shining through even there. And Lord, I pray this morning that you would, again, help us to understand you better help us to know you more and father i pray that you would do a mighty work in our hearts and, and in our midst today in jesus name amen okay well today's passage uh, it reminds me it has all the makings of a hollywood movie i almost expect to see like russell crowe coming out on the screen here because as we get into genesis chapters five and six uh, we're getting close to the flood we're going to be seeing the person of noah comes onto the scene but we're also going to be seeing two chapters that are filled with sin and death and demons and wickedness and pretty much sounds like a Hollywood movie, doesn't it? Um, and some of this is going to be interesting for us to go through. It's not all that easy to understand at times. But sadly, as we look at what we're looking at today, we're going to see a summary of mankind from the creation of Adam all the way to Noah, and it doesn't end well. Um, Ultimately, it does, but we're going to see some. We're going to see judgment. We're going to see wickedness. We're going to see um, just where man has gone as he's rebelled against God in these beginning chapters of the book of Genesis. And it's quite ironic that last week, when Pastor Tom finished up in chapter four of Genesis, the very end of chapter four ended with the words that men at that time men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Well, sadly, their calling didn't last long because we're going to see today that they've gone their own way, and um, the earth became pretty much a very wicked place. In chapter 4, there was a genealogy that took us from Adam through his son Cain, and in that genealogy going from Adam to Cain and to their descendants, uh, there weren't too many men who called upon the name of the Lord. Today in chapter 5, we're going to see another genealogy, and in today's genealogy, it's going to take us from Adam all the way through Noah, but rather than going through Cain, it's going to go through Adam and Eve's son, Seth. And we're going to see there that there were a few men who called upon the name of the Lord. And at a time in this where that was a, a noticeable exception, and it's wonderful to see that there were a couple of men who called upon the name of the Lord, and in a very wicked generation, they were notable and godly exceptions. And that takes us to the first point that I want to make this morning, and that is this, be an exception for God. Now, you might look at the screen and say, well, Pastor Bob, what does that mean? 
in and of itself to be an exception for God? Well, as we unpack Genesis chapter 5, you're going to see what it means and a little bit clearer to stand out and to live as an exception for God. Um, chapter 5 in Genesis, I mentioned, it gives us the genealogy here that runs through the line of Adam. It goes through Seth. And if you're like most readers of the Bible, when you come upon a genealogy, you tend to do one of two things. You either fall asleep or you take your finger and you just kind of go, okay, I'll pick up again over here. And uh, I really want to encourage you not to do that because genealogies are placed in the Bible for a reason. And what we start to see is we start to see the unity of the Bible all the way from the creation, all the way through, and then we see Jesus Christ coming to the earth. We see the, the cross, we see the resurrection, and we see then the, the teachings that go on beyond the life of Christ. And it's all one complete flow of God's overall plan of redemption. And in genealogies, we're going to see things placed in here that help us to understand God better as we look through the genealogies. Now, having said all that, I'm going to be a total hypocrite this morning <laughs> because we're going to skip over a lot of the genealogy in chapter 5. But what I do want to do is I want to pick up reading in chapter 5, and we're going to read, start out by reading verses 1 to 8. Would you join with me there? And if you don't have a Bible this morning and you want one, just raise your hand, and our ushers will be glad to get a Bible to you. But we're going to pick up reading in Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. Notice when I read through this, that phrase, and he died, is going to become a recurring theme. Go on to verse 6. Seth lived 105 years and became the father of Enosh. Then Seth lived 807 years after he became the father of Enosh, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. We see it again there. Now, these verses contain the beginning of the genealogy that goes through Adam, and like I mentioned, through Seth, all the way down to Noah. And the Bible contains other genealogies as well. I'm sure you're aware of that. But if we go in the Old Testament, what we'll see is after the flood, here we see pre-flood, we see from, you know, from Adam to Noah. We go through the flood, and we're going to see now that after the flood, you'll see genealogies take us from Noah to Abraham, and then all the way through to the birth of Jesus Christ. And that's really important to remember. We're going to be dealing a lot today with judgment and God's wrath, but we're going to see that God saved a remnant. And that remnant came through a man called Noah. And Noah, his genealogy going forward leads us all the way to our Savior, Jesus Christ. But I wanted to, as we go through this genealogy, I stressed that point when I said, you know, when it says, and he died, to remember those words. Because here we have, when I, what I just read, we had two of the ten men that are talked about in this genealogy, Adam and Seth. And both Adam and Seth end their genealogy with the phrase, and he died. Now, as we look at the ten men, eight of the ten men 
contained in this chapter in their genealogy, their epitaph that's written about them ends with the phrase, and he died. Mentioned to live as an exception for God. And for us to live as an exception for God, we are going to live in a way in the midst of a sinful generation that's under the curse that we stand out and that our epitaph hopefully ends more than just saying, and he died. But as you go through this chapter, you're going to see the terms, and he died, and he died, and he died, and it goes on and on to the point that some biblical scholars and commentary writers refer to Genesis chapter 5 as the chapter of death. Now, it's appropriate because if you think of what we've gone through so far in Scripture in our study of Genesis, we saw the creation, Adam and Eve were created, we saw the fall happening in the garden, and we saw as a result of the sin of man and the fall that God brought his curse upon the world. And he cursed Adam and Eve, and he cursed the ground, and all of creation now had a curse over it because of the sin of man, and that curse brought in death. Death was not part of God's original plan. When he created Adam and Eve in the garden, it was never God's intent to see that they would die. But because of sin, God's curse brought death into the world. And now we see in chapter 5 of Genesis, just a number of generations after the creation of mankind, we're seeing the result of the sin and the rebellion of mankind that brings death into the world. Now as we go forward... And as we take a look at this, one of the things I really want to encourage as we read through it is that God basically is giving us an epitaph of each of these men. And this epitaph kind of repeats itself. And what we see is it talks about, you know, when they were born, who their son was, how many years they lived, and then it ends in the phrase, and he died. And I want to, as we think about an epitaph, all of us are writing an epitaph by how we lead our lives. Johnny Carson was once asked on, um, remember for Johnny from The Tonight Show? Some of, I hate to say this, yeah, there's some do. Uh, some from The Tonight Show, no, that's Jay Leno, no. But it used to be Johnny Carson, and Johnny was asked one time, he said, you know, in the future, what do you want your epitaph to say? And without just even hesitating, he comes real quick and sharply back and says, I'll be right back. Now, Johnny, you don't get to choose whether you're coming back or not. You know, so sadly, but if you think about it, it's pretty sharp and pretty witty. But as we look at epitaphs, there's a man in the Bible in this chapter who lived in such a way that he had the epitaph that I think all of us as followers of God would want to have. Much better than Annie died and even better than I'll be right back. It's found as we look in the section, I'm going to drop all the way down now to verse 21. And I want to read verses 21 to 24. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. See, Enoch lived as an exception for God. His is one of the few epitaphs here that doesn't end with the phrase, and he died. Now, Enoch kind of um, bypassed physical death. None of us here, apart from Jesus coming back before we die, are going to escape physical death. It just comes with life here on the earth. And all of us are going to die, but obviously here, Enoch was an exception. The Bible says that he walked with God, and he was not because God took him away. 
And as we go through this, we're going to see that God is now taking, shining his wonderful light of grace onto this genealogy. And he's shining the light to show that God himself brought victory over sin and death. I mentioned this was called the chapter of death. But the nice thing about it is, the beautiful thing about it is, that God provided through his means of grace victory over sin and death. Now, Enoch was the one who was able to experience not even physically dying, but being taken into the presence of God. And obviously, every one of us that's here today, we live on the other side of the cross. So we can read through a chapter that's all about death, all about the curse, all about the judgment of God, and we can be confident knowing that we have a relationship. If you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that we too don't have to fall to, the vic- to give death the victory because our Savior Jesus Christ has won that victory for us. I want to go through, and Enoch, he was a very godly voice in a very ungodly time. But Hebrews chapter 11, 5 through 6, if you want to turn to the, back in your Bible, the New Testament, to Hebrews 11, verses 5 to 6. And we see a little bit more about this man Enoch. This is called the Hall of Faith in chapter 11. And it records a little bit for us here about Enoch. And listen to the words in Hebrews 11, 5 and 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now, if you look at this man, Enoch, We see in Genesis, it says that he walked with God. Now we see here in Hebrews chapter 11, he was pleasing to God. There was something obviously very different about Enoch compared to the wicked generation in which he lived. And yet God is calling us to be that very same kind of person that we live in a very wicked generation. Our generation could give Enoch's generation a run for its money. Now, it's sad. If you, I mean, just think about it. Just, in, just this last week alone, I have um, one of my sons is a, a graduate student down at the University of North Carolina. Whatever, four or five days ago, I was driving home from work. I had heard on the news, school shooting at the University of North Carolina. Obviously, as a father, you want to quickly find out what's going on. And three young Muslims were killed by a man who claimed to be an atheist. Then we just think about what's going on in the news today with ISIS. And we see that just wicked executions being filmed and put out on television around the world. How horrible is that? And then we see just thousands upon thousands of people dying all the time through bombings and terrorist acts. And, you know, to talk about wickedness, if, we, if the people in Noah's generation were to be able to go forward and see what's going on today, they would probably say, wow, look at the wickedness of that generation. And that's the generation in which we live And God is calling us to be an exception for what's going on all around us for God. Now, not only, you know, I just gave you some of the extreme examples. Now, I'm about to lose my man card here because my wife enjoys the show Downton Abbey. So, I've been watching it with my wife. And I have to say, we enjoy watching it together. Some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But go back about, you know, say 100 years ago in England at that time, and here is this family, a wealthy family in England, running this big estate home, and they have servants and all that. 
But I found it interesting. You can watch that show, and they run through all their lives, and it goes through years and years and years, and they never mention God. They're going through their lives, just normal lives, good friendships, relationships, and all that, sin all mixed in, but they never even think about God. And it made me wonder to myself, picture us today. Here we are, church this morning. All of you live in different places. Newtown, Levittown, Fairless Hills, Yardley, whatever, wherever it is you live. And we all get in our cars and we drive home. And we go by hundreds of homes as we drive home. How many of those homes are up on Sunday morning worshiping God? How many of those families go throughout their week, their months, their years, and they never even think about God? And you see, they're living godless lives. They may not be terrorists and living to the extreme of wickedness, but they're living their lives apart from God. And God's calling on all of us to be an exception in our generation so that we can reveal the light of Jesus Christ to the world around us. I want to um, have you jump back for a moment to the book of Jude. Um, we're actually going to be in Jude twice today. It's probably the first time in many, many years that Jude's been turned to twice in the same sermon. But um, it's a little book right before the book of Revelation. So go to the last book in the Bible, Revelation, and it's right before that. You have the book of Jude. Um, I don't even have to tell you which chapter to turn to because there's only one. So we're going to have you turn to Jude, verses 14 and 15. And it says here, and he's talking about um, some of the wickedness and stuff, and it says, It was also about these men that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. That is an awful lot of ungodliness in two verses. And you see what God is showing us here is that this man Enoch lived in a godless generation with ungodliness all around him. And he lived righteously for God. It's a beautiful picture and we can sometimes get caught up ourselves. But I want to um, take a moment and go back and think, well, what was it about Enoch? that God said he walked with God. Well, picture what it means to just to walk. You know, walking, it's not the fastest way to get somewhere, is it? Uh, Think of walking, it's like you have a goal in mind, and I'm going to walk to get there. And it's, what we have to do is keep in mind, okay, I've got this goal, I know where I'm going, and I'm going to walk to get there. If I'm going to walk to that pole, I'm going to walk in a straight line, but I want to give you in a spiritual realm. Satan is going to do everything he can to deter your walking with God. See, he's going to want to pull you to the left. He's going to want to pull you to the right. He's going to give you all kinds of things that you can chase after other than God to disturb and disrupt your walk with God. You see, walking, it's almost like there's this this thought of it as it's a daily perseverance, a daily faithfulness that we are just day after day, year after year, we're walking with God. It's not a sprint. Some of us will go on a retreat and we get this spiritual high and we're just ready to take on the world for Jesus Christ. And then two weeks later, life happens, right? We get busy. And all of a sudden, it's like you remember, man, remember how fired up I was for the Lord? 
And, and then we hear about some people here that get on, they're on fire for the Lord. They get really excited. And then like a year later, we're like, Where did, where'd they go? And then we find out, well, they're not even attending church anymore. And it's sad. But you see, Enoch was a man who day after day and year after year walked with God. It's, it's living the kind of life that you're growing the kind of intimacy with Jesus Christ so that the things that God wants become the things that you want. As you become familiar with the Word of God, it starts shaping your heart, shaping your mind, so that God's thoughts become your thoughts. And it's just an intimacy with Jesus Christ that goes on year after year, so that when your life is over, people can look back and say, he or she walked with God. You see, that's what God wants from each and every one of us. And I have to ask the question, are you living your life in such a way that you stand out as an exception for God? Or have you conformed so much to the world around you that you no longer shine as a light for Jesus Christ? See, every one of us, by the choices you make today and tomorrow and next week and next month, you're writing your own epitaph. And what is that epitaph going to say? Simply, and he died? Or are they really going to be able to say, he walked with God? So that's what God wants all of us to live our lives like. I mentioned we had a couple of exceptions in this passage. First, we had Adam. I'm including Adam, even though it said, and he died. I'm including Adam because one of the things, there was a pattern to these um, epitaphs. Basically, talks about what he was born and who his son was and how many years he lived before, how many years he lived after, and then it says, and he died. Adam, it says he was created in the image of God. So that's one exception to this pattern that was flowing in Genesis 5. Then we saw Enoch, and now we're going to see the next exception, and that is Noah himself. So if you want to drop down with me to verse 28, I want to read from 28 to the end of the chapter. Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. See, the curse is coming back into this chapter again. Then Lamech lived 595 years after he became the father of Noah, and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. Noah was 500 years old, and Noah became the father of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. I don't know about you, but I'm not planning on having kids when I'm 500 years old. But um, Noah stood out as a man of God in a very wicked generation. His full, what we may call his epitaph, is not given here. I'm going to turn ahead just to Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. Um, Pastor Tom's going to be covering this section next week, but we're going to steal one of his verses today. Um, it gives a little description of Noah in 6, 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. Here we see it again, that someone who walked with God. Obviously, that was something that God held out as a high priority for those who want to follow him. And amidst all of those epitaphs of death and repeated death, we see here now another godly exception. Since the creation of Adam and mankind, I mentioned we saw that mankind was created. We saw the fall. We saw sin entering into the world. We saw God's 
judgment coming down as he cursed mankind. He cursed the ground. He brought death into the world. But then we saw mankind going from Adam all the way down to Noah and just a very incredibly wicked generation upon the earth. I mentioned that um, scholars and theologians call this chapter the chapter of death because of how many times it just shows us the finality of death coming into the world. There is a story of a man, this goes back quite a while ago, years ago there was a London merchant, his name was Henry Goodyear, not Goodyear, but Goodyear, and Henry was a man who just scoffed at God, he scoffed at the Bible, and he had a, he had a niece who um, had a relationship with Christ, and, and just really to um, please his niece, one day Henry decided to go to church, and when they went to church, his niece was greatly disappointed when she got to church and the pastor was preaching on Genesis chapter 5. Probably maybe some of you can relate to that this morning. But she was sitting here hearing, and he died, and he died, and he died. And she's thinking, why is he preaching on that today, the day that my uncle was willing to come to church? Little did she know that when church was over and they were walking home and they were going back to their house with every step Henry repeated in his mind that phrase, and he died, and he died, and he died. Henry went to work the next day, and he wasn't able to concentrate on his work at all. He went home that night, and he searched for the family Bible, and he pulled it out, and he went back on his own, and he read Genesis chapter 5, and he kept thinking about all the times where it says, and he died, and he died. And that night, Henry thought to himself, I'm alive today but one day I too am going to die. And where am I going to spend eternity? And Henry placed his faith in Jesus Christ that night. Now, we can learn something from that. Every one of us here, I mentioned apart from the rapture happening, we're all going to die. And we're all going to have to face the judgment of God. And are you in the place right now that you can say, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. So I know where I'm going to go when I die. You may be sitting here and you know that you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. And I have to ask the question, the way you're living your life today, are you writing your own epitaph that says that you walked with God? Or is the most they're going to be able to say, and he and she died? You see, we have a choice. Henry looked at this passage and saw the reality of death and placed his faith in Jesus Christ. We have to make that same decision ourselves. Well, I want to go on to Genesis chapter 6. And I'm going to say that this, this chapter, Genesis chapter 6, we're just going to cover verses 1 through 8 today. Verses 1 through 4 are probably some of the most difficult verses in all of the Bible to understand. And so we're going to jump into this. But I, I want to just give a personal aside I had to write a paper when I was at Dallas Seminary on who were they talking about in Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. And in writing that paper, what I realized was, as I studied for today, what a difference in my own heart from when I wrote that paper many years ago, because I was in an academic setting back then. And I was pulling out the Hebrew and the Greek, because there's passages we're going to look at in the New Testament that apply to this. And we had to use the Hebrew, we had to use the Greek, and we had to write this paper, and we had to be able to give all the different views. And, we had, and it was a very academic exercise. And as I was preparing for this today, what I fell in love with was I was thinking about 
coming in and speaking to the church family. And for me, all of a sudden, the unity of the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament came to life. And there's some passages that we can turn to in the New Testament, and we're going to read them today. And apart from what we're going to cover here in chapter 6, for a lot of people, they just read them, and it's like their eyes just glass over. I have no idea what all this means, and you just kind of go on. And hopefully we're going to tie all of this together today, but we're going to learn some things from this as well that will have a significant impact, I hope, on your relationship with Jesus Christ. So with that being said, I want to, um, before I read it, I want to give the first point for this section. And that is, don't be deceived by Satan's lies. Mention on your walk with God, Satan's going to try and deceive you, pull you to the right, pull you to the left. Satan is known as the great deceiver. It's one of his names. Satan deceived Eve in the garden, and he obviously deceived many, many, many of the angels who rebelled against God with Satan and were thrown out of heaven and have followed Satan ever since. So Satan is a deceiver, and he's alive today, and he wants to deceive people all around us, and he would like to deceive you in your life as well. And most of his deceits run along the lines of, you really don't need God. You can do this yourself. And he tries to set our minds on anything he can other than God himself. Let's pick up reading in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4 to start. Now it came about, when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, there's where it gets a little crazy, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Wow, kind of sounds like a Lord of the Rings movie, doesn't it? We've got the daughters of men, and we've got the sons of God, and we have the Nephilim. What is going on here? Well, I have two things I really want to cover this morning. What does all this mean, and so what? And that's how we're going to wrap up this morning. Now, as we look at this, uh, mankind had multiplied on the earth. I mentioned that, you know, the generations had started to spread across the lands, and it became a very wicked and sinful place. And then we just read in this, what we just read, and it says that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and they took them as their wives. So who were these people? Well, I'm going to have to, just for the sake of time, I'm going to just tell you what I believe is the best explanation without giving you all of the views that are out there and then some scripture to support it. Now, I encourage you to look it up yourself and do some study on your own. But the daughters of, the daughters of men is less debated than the sons of God. Most commentaries and theologians would say that the daughters of men were simply human daughters born to human parents who were alive on the earth back at that time. Well, now we find out that the sons of God saw them and thought they were attractive. They lusted after them, and they took them as their wives. So who were these sons of God? Well, I'm going to say that these sons of God were fallen angels who rebelled when Satan rebelled, who came to the earth in the form of men and married these human women. Now, Sounds a little bit bizarre, doesn't it? 
Well, let's walk through, and I'll walk you through why I say this, and we can um, turn to the New Testament for some of that as well. But the terms, the Son of God, the phrase sons of God in Hebrew, it literally means to be brought into existence by God's creative act. To be brought into existence by God's creative act. Now, in the Old Testament, the sons of God, that phrase is used in other places in the Old Testament. Every other time in the Old Testament where that phrase is used, it refers to angels. So we see that the biblical use of it supports this. It's, you know, every other time in the Old Testament, that phrase means an angel. Now, if you go back to the church fathers, the biblical scholars who lived in the centuries right following Jesus' time on the earth and when the apostles lived, almost every one of the church fathers says that the sons of God in this passage were fallen angels. So there's a lot of history there as well. And, um, and then as we look through this, the thought of like, well, you know, angels coming down and taking human form. Well, think about what happened with Abraham. Remember Abraham was in his camp and all of a sudden angels walked in in the form of men and they had a meal with Abraham. Then think about Lot. Here was Lot and Sodom and right before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, who came into Lot and rescued Lot and took him out of Sodom? Angels in the form of men. So now what we're saying here is, rather, they, they, they were God's angels. Angels, when they were on the earth, were always sent by God for a specific mission and purpose. Their abode is heaven, but they become God's messengers to carry out God's work on the earth. The fallen angels, however, rebelled against God. They followed Satan. They thought they knew better. They thought they could do it their own way. And now these fallen angels were thrown out of heaven. They left their abode in heaven. They came down to the earth. They thought that the human women were beautiful. They lusted after them and they took them as their wives. So, one other point to make on this is the thing that society had become so wicked that these human women willingly entered into a marriage relationship with these fallen angels. Now, you say, well, how do you know that? Because it says took. Well, maybe they abducted them. Maybe they forcibly raped them. No, because that word took in the Old Testament, is used all throughout the Old Testament for marriage relationships. Abraham took Sarah. You know, we have Jacob took Rachel to be his wife. And it's showing the marriage relationship that was mutually agreeable between the male and the female, the husband and the wife. So we have now that these women are willingly entering into relationships with these sons of God. And what I would just say, I mentioned the point of this was, don't be deceived by Satan's lies. Obviously, these fallen angels presented to these women an alternative to following God that must have seemed awfully attractive to these women as they entered into marriage relationships with these fallen angels. You see, they, God, more than anything, wants us to walk with him. But they willingly chose to go their own way choosing something other than God and obviously entering into marriage. Now, there are some challenges to this, and I want to just walk through those. One of them comes in Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. Now, Jesus said these words himself, and trust me, Jesus is a very good authority. If Jesus says it, I highly recommend you go that direction. If I or Pastor Tom or Pastor John or someone comes up here and we say something that counters what Jesus said, go with Jesus. Uh, and also probably start interviewing for some new pastors if that ever happens. 
But if you look at Matthew 22, 30, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. People use this verse to say, well, wait a minute, the sons of God couldn't be angels because Matthew chapter 22, 30 just says that angels are sexless and they don't marry. Well, they threw in a word there that's not in in the passage. You see, what this passage is telling us, this is coming out when Jesus was answering a question. The um, religious leaders tried to trick Jesus, and it was back when they were saying, well, if a man has a woman, and he dies, and his brother marries her, and then he dies, and then the next brother marries her, and then it goes on down the line, and they say, when it comes to the resurrection, whose wife is she? Who's her husband? And that's where Jesus says, you know, you're mistaken. In heaven, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. So there is no state of marriage in heaven. And what this verse is saying is, just like for humans, just like for men and women, there's no marriage in heaven. The angels do not marry nor are they given in marriage in heaven. It doesn't say anything about their sexlessness or their ability to reproduce. Angels are created by God so they are not reproducing in heaven. Okay, so that's kind of, they're they're created by God. One of the reasons God's judgment came so hard that we're going to see a little bit here on these fallen angels was because they took things into their own hands. They left the natural order that God had established, and we're going to see that God calls it a sexual perversion later here as we look into the New Testament. But basically, angels left their proper abode, their proper structure, and took these women as their wives. It's getting a little bit unusual in this passage, isn't it? Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Now, as we go through some of the, in the Old Testament, I mean the New Testament, these sons of God start appearing again. And I want to um, turn to you. First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. Let me read that. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Okay, well, that clarifies everything, doesn't it? All right, what's going on here? Here you have another passage in the New Testament. I think a lot of times people gloss over this because it sounds a little confusing. But Jesus, when he was crucified, he was buried in his body. His physical body was in the grave for three days. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, rose again on Sunday. And what this passage is telling us is that during that period of time when Jesus' physical body was in the grave, his spirit went somewhere. Where did it go? Jesus' spirit went and made a proclamation to those, you know, to the fallen angels who were now in prison because of their disobedience during the days of Noah. Now, um, trust me, you, guys, you said when the Super Bowl came out and they had some of those commercials came out with like, you know, kind of like the NFL, the touchdown dance, where, what was the guy's name, Icky Woods or whatever his name is? You know, if you see that, even like in the grocery store, he breaks out into a dance. That's not what Jesus was doing. See, Jesus was going to these angels, fallen angels in prison, 
And he was proclaiming his victory over death. Sound familiar? Go back to what took place in the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 5, the chapter of death. Jesus was going back to proclaim that he has brought victory over death. Remember his words on the cross. It is finished. And Jesus proclaimed, I have come to carry out my father's work. And he gained us victory over sin and death. And Jesus breathed out, it is finished. In the same way, he was proclaiming to these fallen angels, it is finished, and I have brought victory over death. Now, turn back one more book in the Bible to 2 Peter chapter 2, and take a look at verses 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, well, now, here we're sitting here saying, God didn't spare these angels when they sinned. Their wickedness was so great that God intervened. He put them into pits of darkness. But this is not talking about the future because it says here, they're reserved for judgment. And the judgment is coming, but it hasn't happened yet. So now, when this was written, when Peter wrote this, and today, these spirits, these fallen angels, are still in this pit of darkness in chains awaiting future judgment. It goes on to verse 5. And he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. See, at the same time, when God judged human mankind for its wickedness with the flood, God judged these fallen angels and put them into a prison awaiting future judgment. He brought his judgment upon the earth by bringing the flood but it says here, again, we have the righteousness of Noah. He spared Noah as a remnant because of his righteousness. Now, keep going. And this is why it helps because there's a number of places we see here that this is talked about in the New Testament. And without an understanding to tie this all together, we just kind of gloss over. Turn to Jude verses 6 and 7. Again, right after, keep going towards the back of the Bible from Peter before the book of Revelation. Jude, verses 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own domain, okay, so we now we're talking about angels, they left their domain in heaven, but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Confirms what we read in 2 Peter. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. You see, Sodom and Gomorrah, their sins were great. Their greatest sins were the rebellion against God, but they were known for their sexual perversions and God's wrath came upon them and destroyed those cities. And what we see here, these angels, not all of the angels who rebelled with Satan are in that, in that prison right now, but those who came upon the earth and engaged in gross sexual immorality, God intervened and placed some of these fallen angels in a prison awaiting judgment. Others, sadly, have freedom on the earth until Jesus Christ returns to torment and to lead us astray and to lead mankind astray. But this is what we're looking at here is what's taking place. We had a very, very wicked generation, and God stepped in to intervene. Now, 
The one thing I skipped over in Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, I talked about the daughters of men, talked about the sons of God. There was a very strange group that was mentioned in verse 4, the Nephilim. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men. Now, there's really two dominant views on who were the Nephilim. One of the views is that these were just a, a race of mighty men, just really strong, powerful warriors, mighty men of old who were alive on the earth, human. Another view is that the Nephilim were the offspring when the sons of God married the daughters of men. Their offspring that they produced were called the Nephilim, just a mighty, powerful, warrior-like people that lived on the earth. You know, I probably lean to saying that they would have been the offspring of the sons of God and the daughters of men. I could go either way on that one if you want to do some study yourselves. It doesn't really change much when interpretation and how you view this. Um, the Bible doesn't tell us clearly, but it, it seems to make sense that they probably were the offspring to these people. Now, this brings us to our final point, and that is this. God always judges sin and delivers the righteous. Now, that's, we already got an amen up front, which is great, because you know what? If we went through this chapter of death and all this weirdness and the wickedness that was going on, God delivers the righteous. And God judged the, the fallen angels. He put him in prison. He judged mankind. We know that he brought the flood on. And God is going to judge the sins of every generation. Every generation that ever lived, including ours, were not going to be an exception. God judges sin, and one day God's going to bring his judgment. Look at, um, look at verses 5 to 8. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Picture that, just the evil that was taking place. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What a great way that we end this with Noah. The wickedness, you know, every thought and the evil intent of their, every intent of their hearts was evil. So evil to the point that it grieved God. See, we have a God that when we sin, when we choose to rebel, when we choose to go our own way, we're grieving the Spirit of God. That's how much God loved us. God loved us so very much that he saw his sinfulness that he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for the forgiveness of our sins. That's how much our God loves us. You know, as we wrap up, you know, we're looking at the, you know, the wickedness around us, but it, it, it just, it falls on us as well. And you see, Noah, as I mentioned, Enoch was like a ray of light of God's grace. Well, Noah was too. God used Noah as a ray of light of his grace to bring him through the flood to save mankind. You know, some of us might think, well, well Noah, God called him a righteous man. He deserved it. He should have been saved. In reality, he didn't deserve it. Noah was a sinner just like me and you. And Noah deserved to die in that flood and face the judgment of God just as much as anyone else. But you see, you know what saved Noah? His faith in God. That was it. And in God's divine grace, saved Noah and brought him through the flood as a remnant. Every one of us today, do we, do we, judge, do we deserve to escape 
you know, our eternal death and, and you know, God's curse and judgment on us? Or do we deserve eternal life? You know what? We deserve God's judgment. We're sinners. But the beautiful thing is, our God is a God of grace. And just like God sent the ark in the Old Testament to save Noah and deliver him through the flood, God sent us the cross of Jesus Christ. I point to it, but it's not there yet, but it's coming soon. But you know what? It's not the wooden cross itself that saved us, but that cross represents the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you were alive when Noah's day, the only thing that could have saved you from that flood was getting on the ark. God used that ark as a means of salvation for them. Today, and every generation that's ever lived, the only thing that saves us is the cross of Jesus Christ. And as we end this morning, I want to challenge us. If, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you've never trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, please don't leave here today without doing that. We heard the story of Henry Goodyear. He realized that death was you know, inevitable. And he trusted Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. You know, you could be sitting here today and you may be a believer already. And I want to remind us that you are, every day, writing your own epitaph. And do you want that epitaph to say that you walked with God? You see, we have that choice. It starts with a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then it becomes every day making the choice daily to walk with God and to be an exception to the world around us, to live for Jesus Christ. Let the world know about him and choose to follow him daily. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as you saved Noah from the floodwaters thousands of years ago, that you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to offer us a means of salvation today. Lord, Noah himself made it to heaven because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He didn't know the details of the cross, but his faith in God was credited to him as righteousness so that when Jesus died on that cross, Noah himself was saved because of Jesus. And Lord, we live on the other side of the cross today. We know the events that took place. We know we're sinners. And God, we can look back and know that we have a Savior, the Son of God, who went to the cross to die on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that if anyone here today does not know you, that they would place their faith in you, Father. Draw them to you and do a mighty work in their lives. And Lord, for those of us who already know you, I pray that we would not leave here untouched. I pray that we would not go through our lives living for ourselves as if it's all about us. And Lord, that we would live in a way that pleases you. Lord, we can live in a way that truly can be said that we walk with God. We thank you that we can have this relationship with you. And Father, we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks.